Hi, everybody. Brian Sussman here. The Brian Sussman Show podcast, Faith, Family, and Freedom. And this is, of course, the 4th of July edition, the Independence Day edition of this podcast. I'm excited about it because I'm going to be telling you about six people that perhaps you've never heard of before. You know, there were actually 56 signers to the Declaration of Independence, 56 signers. And most of those names on that declaration are foreign, certainly to most people today, but even to, you know, many of the most astute historians, uh, you know, amateur historians. We look at these names and we don't know who these people are. Their stories are incredible. Their stories are, well, shall we say, beyond encouraging. They're inspirational. And I'm going to tell you about, again, six people, actually three who signed the declaration and their wives. But I wanted to start with something from my book, Eco-Tyranny, How the Left's Green Agenda Will Dismantle America. I wrote this in 2012. In the 12th chapter of the book, which is entitled Red, White, and Green, I put forward a scenario, and the scenario, well, it, it sounds quite fictitious, but in fact... The, the, the bulk, uh, the, the nuts and bolts, the bones of this story that I present were all taken from federal regulations that have been put in place over the many years and then went on steroids during the Barack Obama presidency. Donald Trump came into office and a lot of these regulations were tossed but the Biden administration is instituting them once again. So allow me to read. Again, all of this sounds wild, fictitious. This could never happen. But in fact, as I, as I want to just stress, the nuts and bolts, the bones, the bulk, the substance of what I'm writing about is happening before our very eyes. And some of it will ring true. Again, this was written in 2012. So allow me to begin. This is on page 207 of Eco-Tyranny. The year 2050. It's a beautiful day. And although you've been away from home for quite a while, it feels good to be back in the city you recall being the county seat. However, something isn't quite right. There are way more people than you ever remembered, outside of a special occasion, of course, like the 4th of July or the annual Christmas parade. The sidewalks are packed with people. But they seem emotionless, robotic, briskly walking to and fro, probably to work or shopping, no smiles, no eye contact, no hellos. Everyone who isn't walking is either navigating his way on a bike or rides a bus. You remember the downtown buses to be sure. In fact, you used to ride them with your mom when you were a kid, but there weren't so many of them then. And now they're packed to the gills, all of them standing room only. Where are the cars, you think to yourself, other than a few electronically humming subcontact, uh, subcompact pretend cars, there's nary a, a real one to be found. And there are lots of enormous apartment buildings and the fancy hotel where your best friend's wedding reception was held. Well, that's the new train station. Confused, you approach a kiosk under a sign that reads, Federal Office of Orientation Information Center. Hmm. Federal Office? After a few seconds of conversation with a badge-wearing bureaucrat behind the counter, 
the government worker condescendingly comments, it's none of my business where you've been, nor do I judge you, but obviously you've been away for some time. So let me enlighten you. She then launches into a rote, dull lecture, explaining that the population of the United States is swollen to over 400 million. The country is still called the United States, but it's no longer the Constitutional Republic consisting of 50 states that you remembered. Instead of states, citizens now refer to their personal location of habitation as a mega-region. Ten of such mega-regions are stretched across the country, and they're subsectored into thousands of urban hubs. Virtually everyone in America resides within one of the hubs. The closer to the center of the hub, the more convenient. The people in the hubs live in high-density housing units close to their jobs. For those few with a little money, home is a zero-lot-line townhome or an almost as expensive condo. But for most, home sweet home is a tightly-packed, multi-story building topped with a giant solar array. The bottom floor of just about every residential building is leased to retail stores that provide the basics for living. Long ago, people foolishly described their homes by square footage, the bigger the better. But since we've discovered the truth, smaller is more efficient, she proudly proclaims. You were shocked to learn that people now boast about how small their dwelling is, which means they are fashionably reducing the size of their carbon footprint. That's what it's all about, your footprint. Keep thy footprint small, and thus you are a good citizen of the planet, she recites. You learn that utility rates are incredibly expensive, and that electricity and water are continually in short supply. The new three R's are reduce, reuse, and recycle. If you would like to fill out one of the forms to receive monthly assistance on your electricity bill, I can direct you to the Office of Green Living. However, there is no help available with your water bill. If you surpass your quota, the fines are heavy. Three abuses, and it could be jail or imprisonment. The matter-of-fact statement shocks you, and you try to cover it up. The young woman is sharp yet attempts to provide some odd humor along the way. Hey, it's not so bad once you get the hang of it. And always remember this, when it's yellow, let it mellow. And when it's brown, flush it down. You're not amused. She picks up on your discomfort and adjusts her tact, explaining that there are still a few people within the hubs that own big traditional homes, the kind you remember. The owners are wealthy, mostly older people who live in antiquated suburbs where large single-family houses remain in what decades ago were referred to subdivisions. The vast majority of homes in these neighborhoods were raised long ago. The big real estate killer in the suburbs, however, was the smart meter. Once the government began closely monitoring carbon footprints and regulating electricity usage, most people couldn't afford the high energy and the water bills. Couldn't afford the government-mandated green updates or were just fed up with the constant hassle of having their power turned off by the utility company when it determined they were consuming too much energy. The smart meter was a necessary government mandate that has helped heal the planet, she proclaims. Eventually, 
most suburbanites ended up walking away from their mortgages because there was no market for resale. The empty houses were scraped from their foundations, basements were filled in with dirt, and the properties were landscaped with native species. There is absolutely no need for a large home in this sensible day and age, and no one does the children thing much anymore either. Couples live in a long-term relationship. They might have one child, but most choose to have none. It's far more practical. The children thing, you think to yourself? She pauses for a moment and then blandly, blandly continues with her memorized script. Humans require an abundance of resources, and, and those are taken at Gaia's expense. Gaia? You're stunned. You ask about the buses and the trains and the lack of cars. Virtually everyone in the suburbs and some living in townhouses or condos own electric plug-in cars, you find out. They're, they're expensive to purchase and to charge, and that's why for the majority of residents, walking, biking, or public transportation are the preferred options. If it's necessary to travel to another urban hub, one can easily rent a plug-in. However, trusting an electric vehicle to reliably take you too far is chancy. Although we've not yet mastered the energy storage technology, our government remains committed to develop more efficient battery technology, she says. For interhub travel, light rail is the most efficient choice, she continues. Connections can be made with complementary bus lines to seamlessly complete your travel plans. If you must make a visit to another mega-region, then high-speed rail remains the most efficient choice. Punctuality is not guaranteed, but government subsidies make it the travel mode of choice for millions of citizens. What about air travel, you ask? Well, it certainly remains an option, but keep in mind, with carbon taxes and offsets, it's a very expensive mode of transportation, primarily reserved for government workers, those on business, or the rich. The docent's face actually softens with a slight smile as she informs you of the American land beyond the mega-regions. Thanks to the diligent work of the Department of Interior, the Environmental Protection Agency, and the Climate Change Adaption Task Force over the past 15 years, the remaining outposts of rural America have vanished, she boasts. You can't believe what you're hearing. Private ranches, farms, small towns, they're all a thing of the past. Most vacation homes and cabins in, in rural communities have also disappeared. While some folks lost their property to the same challenges the suburbanites succumbed to, others could no longer win battles against the EPA involving invasive, threatened, or endangered species. Others were forced to sell property under the jurisdiction of a national park or historical landmark. Some landowners even became fearful of overwhelming wildlife, bears, wolves, mountain lions, which has become plentiful each year without any natural predators such as man to keep the populations in check. The kiosk agent refers to this mass evacuation of the countryside as de-development. She is almost excited as she, she goes on about how the North American continent has now been sectored off to accommodate four massive corridors, the wild ways, designated for wildlife only. Other than a few ranches owned by Hollywood stars or other wealthy citizens, Evidence of past human habitation has been completely erased from these broad regions. 
While humans are able to visit limited portions of these vast open spaces, the bulk of the land is restricted to all but government researchers, elite members of society, and Native Americans. Violators are subject to confrontation by gun-carrying federal agents. Bewildered, you back away from the kiosk, turn, and glance about, hoping for a sign that you're simply having a bad dream. Where am I? Ah, you spot a flag, an American flag, the familiar red and white stripes, 50 stars on a field of blue... On a field of green? The brainwashed government spokesman notices the direction of your gaze. Now, don't misunderstand. We're all still very patriotic people. A lot of people fly the old stars and stripes from their balconies. In fact, each professional soccer game now begins with the singing of America the Beautiful. America the Beautiful? Immediately, the accommodating bureaucrat breaks into a proud but painful rendition of that anthem. America, America, Gaia, shed her grace on thee. She leans toward you, whispering, it really is a wonderful song. But what about our national motto, you respond? In green we trust? (laughs) What about it? You place your hand on your forehead and desperately try to rub yourself awake. This can't be happening. This has to be a nightmare. I'll wake up any second. (laughs) Any second. So again, that's from Eco-Tyranny. Now, much of what I spoke of is in the works, friends. It's amazing. Uh, The power, for example, of the EPA, the power of the BLM, which I didn't mention just there. I mentioned a little bit later. And I'm not talking about Black Lives Matter. I'm talking about the Bureau of Land Management. Uh, the wild ways are, are all for real. I mean, those are in development as we speak. The smart meters are getting smarter all the time. This push by the Biden administration to get rid of fossil fuel cars and get us into electric vehicles. It's all happening before our very eyes. And I wrote about it in Eco Tyranny. So I ask about this question because. At what point in time are we willing to do something? It's, it's an old slogan, but it's, it's worthy of a repeat. What hill are we willing to die on? And I say that because this is the July 4th holiday weekend, Independence Day. Independence from what? Independence from the British crown. It had to do with liberty. It had to do with freedom. It had to do with faith. It had to do with taxes. So here we are. And I want to tell you about some people who perhaps you've never heard of before. I write about them as well in the book, Eco-Tyranny. This is from the afterword, and I'm going to read it to you right now. These are patriotic role models. The stories of the patriots, this is on 235 of the book. The stories of the patriots who founded America are incredibly inspirational, particularly the accounts of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence. All those who inscribed their names on this document knew that by doing so, they and their families would become targets of the British crown. 
There's an author, his name is B.J. Lossing. He wrote in 1948 in a book entitled Signers of the Declaration of Independence. He wrote this. The signers of that instrument, or excuse me, the signing of that instrument was a solemn act and required great firmness and patriotism in those who committed it. It was treason against the home government, yet perfect allegiance to the law of right. I, I want to repeat that because I think it's just so perfect for us to consider right now. Treason against the home government, but allegiance to the law of right. It subjected those who signed it to the danger of death and yet entitled them to the profound reverence of a disenthralled people. Now I continue. I often imagine the conversations that must have taken place between the signers and their wives prior to the vote to accept the declaration on July 4th, 1776. All of these men but one were married. Benjamin Franklin's wife had passed away many, er many years earlier. The family unit was very secure in those days, and the bonds of marriage were exceptionally strong. There were 55 exchanges that must have sounded something like this. And I believe what I'm writing here to be true. Maybe not true to the word and the jot and tittle, but this is the essence of conversations that I believe went down. And I'll prove my point in just a moment. Husband. My vote and subsequent signature will guarantee vigorous persecution. The British and their allies might well come after you and our children. We will be despised by the crown. Wife, but if we don't proclaim our independence, the children will grow up forever subservient to the king. Husband, we talk much of being ready to give all for this new land, our lives, our fortune, and our sacred honor. The battle's ahead will not be easy. Wife, neither will liberty. Sign it. There are three signers whose lives have always been of particular interest to me. The first is named Richard Stockton. Stockton's grandparents came to New York about 1660, eventually settling near Princeton, Princeton, New Jersey, where Richard would eventually be born in 1730. Stockton became a highly regarded attorney and in 1776 embarked for London where his legal skills were honored by the king. Upon returning home in 1768, Stockton was chosen as a member of the Royal Executive Council of New Jersey and eventually placed on the bench of the New Jersey Supreme Court. While it would have been natural for Stockton to remain a loyal and wealthy subject of the king, he longed for liberty and begin to espouse the cause of the colonial patriots. The Provincial Congress of New Jersey elected him a delegate to the Continental Congress in 1776, where he became deeply involved in the debate for independence. On July 4th, he voted for the Declaration and, with the others, signed the document. Soon after returning to his estate in Princeton, word came that the British army was coming through the area in pursuit of General Washington and his small band of soldiers. Aware that he was on the British hit list, Stockton and his wife Annis 
hastily gathered their children and fled to a friend's farm some 30 miles away. However, a neighbor, faithful to the crown, discovered Stockton's hideaway. A group of loyalists stormed the farm and captured Stockton and presented him to the royal authorities. Stockton was jailed and treated extremely poorly, nearly dying of starvation. In time, Congress took up his cause and arranged a prisoner exchange to free him from his captors. Upon release, Stockton was in terrible health. He was able to secure transportation to his estate in Princeton and was shocked to find his home destroyed, his livestock slaughtered, his horses gone, and his wife and children in tatters. Stockton never recovered. He suffered from chronic illness, depression, and eventually died in 1781 at the age of 51. Annis and the children were cared for by family and friends. So that's one story, and I continue, and I will in just a moment, but think about this. He signed that document in 1776. Five years later, he was dead. He was, he never, he never recovered from his imprisonment. He was treated so terribly. Five years later, as a man of 51, he died. And his, his wife and children were cared for by family and friends because they had lost everything. I want to tell you next about Francis Lewis. Francis Lewis was born in Wales in 1713. He was orphaned at the age of five, raised by relatives after a college education in London. He became a business apprentice and earnestly saved his money. And at the age of 21, he set sail for New York, where he established an importing business. Pretty sharp young guy. I continue. In 1756, during the French and Indian War, Lewis was a special aide to British forces supplying them with uniforms and other critical supplies. He was on business at Fort Oswego when a bloody battle broke out against the French aggressors. Lewis was taken prisoner and sent to France aboard a ship, cruelly housed in a wooden box. Upon his release, finally, at the close of the war, Lewis was rewarded for his service to the Crown with 5,000 acres of land in New York. Again, well, one might think, such a man would forever be loyal to Great Britain. Such was not the case for Lewis. He saw how the edicts from England were strangling freedom in the colonies, and according to Lossing, the historian that I read from earlier, Lewis held dearly to his, quote, Republican views. Lewis's wife, Elizabeth, also a devout patriot and fervent supporter of her husband, uh, let me start that line over again. Lewis's wife, Elizabeth, was also a devout patriot and fervently supported her husband when he was elected a delegate to the General Congress in 1775 and signed the Declaration of Independence in Philadelphia the following year. Once the Declaration was signed, the British placed a price upon the head of Francis Lewis. So in other words, you know, the thought was, what a traitor. We have treated him so good, 5,000 acres of land, and this is what he does? Continuing, before he was able to reach his home on Long Island, 
the 5,000 acres. Before he was able to reach his home on Long Island, ground troops and a warship were sent to seize his wife and destroy his property. Elizabeth watched from a balcony as a cannonball crashed into a wall immediately next to her. A servant shouted, Run, mistress, run! Mrs. Lewis calmly replied, and this is documented, calmly replied, Another shot is not likely to strike the same spot. And she did not budge. Soldiers soon soon entered the home, destroying all the books, all the papers, and ruthlessly pillaging the property. Elizabeth Lewis was taken to New York and thrown in prison. She was not allowed a bed or a change of clothing and giving little to eat. A former family African servant, I just want to be clear, an African servant, discovered her location and was able to smuggle some small articles of clothing and some food to her. The servant, who also loved her and the family, reported her whereabouts and condition to Congress. So he was risking his own life for the sake of Elizabeth. Demands were made by Congress for her better treatment, but the British were determined to make an example of Mrs. Lewis and her prominence and her wealth. Finally, General Washington was able to broker a prisoner exchange and Elizabeth was able to join her husband in Philadelphia. However, it was plain to everyone that because of her mistreatment, she was broken in health and she was slowly sinking into the grave. Francis Lewis soon asked, his, asked for a leave of absence from Congress to devote his whole time to his wife. She died in 1779. Three years after the signing of that document, she dies. Okay, and I continue. Grief-stricken, of course. Grief-stricken, Lewis retired from Congress to live with his sons. This great patriot died in 1802 at the age of 89 in New York City. He was buried in an unmarked grave in the yard of Trinity Church. And I have seen that unmarked grave. And it, when you know the whole story and you see that grave, which is, <clears throat> it's really just causes one to pause. I continue. The third patriot who, was self, who selflessly endured great sacrifice for the sake of freedom was a humble man named John Hart. He was a farmer and known throughout New Jersey as Honest John Hart. Fellow signer Benjamin Rush described him as a plain, honest, well-meaning Jersey farmer, but with little education, but with some good sense and virtue enough to pursue the interests of his country. Uh, so if you've ever heard someone refer, if their name is John and they've been referred to as Honest John, that's where this is coming from, John Hart. And again, he was not a formally educated man, but he had enough good sense and virtue to pursue the true interests of his country. Now, for some of you who are, are not formally educated, uh, you're probably as smart as a whip and you know right from wrong. And you know the truth from a lie. And you know what's happening in this country. 
And I know that you can, and maybe some of you have done and have sought the true interests of this country. We've got to continue. Now, let me tell you more about John Hart. Honest John served with distinction as a justice of the peace, a freeholder. A freeholder was the highest position in county government. And in revolution and in the pre-revolutionary legislatures of New Jersey. However, in 1765, he turned against British authorities over the imposition of the Stamp Act. The Stamp Act was a direct tax imposed on the colonies by the British Parliament. The act was created to pay for British troops stationed in North America and mandated that virtually every printed material imaginable be produced on stamped parchment that was produced in London, carrying an embossed revenue stamp. Like previous taxes, the stamp had to be paid in valid British currency, not colonial paper money. The tax enraged many colonists like John Hart. In 1774, Hart was elected to the first Continental Congress by the people of New Jersey and signed the Declaration of Independence two years later. Immediately, Hart's life was noted with a series of tragic losses. Shortly after signing the Declaration, he was elected to the New Jersey State Assembly and chosen as its Speaker. And knowing he was busy leading the state legislature, royal mercenaries raided his farm, destroyed his livestock, and terrorized his wife, Deborah. Upon learning of the raid, Hart immediately returned home to find his wife very ill. Hart was at his wife's side as she passed away on October 8, 1776. His grieving was interrupted by British troops who were searching for him. He fled to the forest and his two youngest children ran to the home of a relative. Hart spent that winter on the run. Now, if you've ever been involved in a winter on the East Coast, and especially during that particular period of time, which was known as the Little Ice Age, the winters were very, very harsh. Can you imagine? He spent that winter on the run, sleeping in caves, eating whatever he could find. Once it became clear that the British had vacated the the area, Hart returned home. And what did he return home to? Nothing. Nothing. Though he was re-elected as Speaker of the Assembly, most accounts say that Honest John's heart was broken. Soon he became very ill, and he died at his home on May 11, 1779. So here's another guy. Three years later, he's dead. He's dead of a broken heart. You know, in each one of these cases, what do we have? We have premature death, horrible death, I might add. We have property destroyed, fortunes wiped out. These are just three of the signers. Richard and Annis Stockton, Francis and Elizabeth Lewis, John and Deborah Hart, took literally the words of the Declaration of Independence, which state states, and for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other 
our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. You know, if the Stocktons, Lewises, and Hearts were with us today, what would they instruct us to do, friends? What would they instruct us to do? Things are, are not going swimmingly well in this country. And at some point in time, men and women of good character need to stand up and say, enough. Uh, we had a good run when Donald Trump was president of the United States. I know there are people uh, left, right, and center who say, I, I don't like his personality. Well, say what you will about his personality. That guy got things done. Beginning with Roe versus Wade, in my opinion. You can put that right at the top of the list. And then you can go through all the regulations that he threw out. Got him off the books. The way in which he was able to turn this economy around, to make us energy dependent, to attempt to secure our border. That was a start, but we need oh so much more. So friends, on this Independence Day, I just, I just pray that God will have mercy on this land. I pray that uh, God will bless this land. And when I think of God's mercy and his blessings, I think first and foremost of the fact that this has been a center for evangelism around the world. This, this country has brought forth the word of God, which is able to transform lives throughout the world now for, for quite some time. I pray that will continue. But I also pray in this land there will be a revival of spirit that people will stop looking to self and look up to heaven and realize that there is a creator who is for us and not against us. And that creator wishes and desires for us to surrender our lives to him and his son who died and was raised from the grave on our behalf. That's, that's really our only eternal hope, my friends. And I ask this question, what, what, what hill are you willing to die on, my friends? I, I'm not asking for people to get crazy. I'm just saying, at some point in time, we got to stick a fork in it and say, enough, enough. I, I want you to go out there and just make it a great holiday weekend. Enjoy your family. I'll go to my website, by the way, briansussman.com. I've got a, my great Patriot rib recipe. It is a world-famous recipe. Uh, just, <laughs> you want to have some great ribs? Have some great ribs. Have some great food. Have some great family celebration. Uh, and, and raise a toast to the United States of America and take a moment to pray for this great land as well. Thank you, my friends. It's a pleasure and an honor to serve you with these podcasts, Faith, Family, and Freedom. Not only does it make me feel as if I've still got a little hand in the game, but I work hard on these podcasts to make sure that all the I's are dotted and all the T's are crossed to give you the very, very best that you can share with other people as well. Thanks for joining me, everybody. God bless America.